You know, this week I was speaking with a uh, few of the brothers, uh, you, know, pa- uh, you know, fellow pastor friends, uh, on the phone about all that's going on in our world. And uh, uh, I, I don't know, as a matter of fact, uh, from an old Marine buddy of mine, I got a prophetic question that came in the email last night, and, and I wanted to answer that because uh, what he had heard uh, was pretty convoluted, and there's a lot of convoluted ideas about what's going on out there in our world. When you think about, you know, half our, half our country's on fire, uh, the southern half of the country's underwater, uh, we look what's taking place uh, around the world inter- internationally uh, with, um, you know, that crazy little guy over there in Korea, not knowing what he's going to do, and, um, you know, somebody was, uh, we were talking about these things yesterday to somebody, and they said, you know what? Um, the mere fact that we've got 90 degrees in Rochester uh, on, in September, it must be close to the end of the world. Um, uh, but at any rate, uh, one of these dear brothers that I was speaking with is somebody that you know has been with us a number of times before, and I'm speaking about Pastor Jimmy O'Keefe, and so Jimmy is with us this morning, and he's going to share uh, from the scriptures um, as we consider some of these things. It's so important as we measure what's going on in our world, we look at it through the grid of the Bible. That puts everything in perspective. So uh, let's give our brother Jimmy a warm welcome. Jim. Hi, good morning, everyone. You know, it's a great joy for me in this season of my life to be able to travel here and there um, as, as an itinerant, uh, someone who had the opportunity to pastor a church for years and and then, you know, through various circumstances, the Lord called me to lay that aside. And so I've been traveling as an itinerant uh, in recent years. And there are places I go uh, periodically. And it's when I visit there, it's like uh, it's just like a comfortable pair of shoes. Not, not, I'm not talking about a smelly pair of shoes. <laughs> yes. And, and, and I to what she said. And if you over here didn't hear it, she, when I said, not smelly, she said, thank God. <laughs> yeah, we can thank God for lots of things, and that would be another one of them. Uh, but uh, comfortable in, in the most uh, positive sense, and any, every time I'm here, it's just how it is. It's just great. It's always great to be with you. Um, always, always great to open the word with you. You're well taught here, so there's nothing I'm going to share with you this morning that you don't know. But as Peter said, even though you know these things, I will not fail to put you in remembrance of them. So we're going to look at a couple of passages of Scripture this, this morning. The first is in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch and pray. Above all else, have fervent love among yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sin. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. And as every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now drop down to the latter part of verse 11, that God in all things might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless this time as we look now into your word, 
Uh, Lord, instruct us by the Holy Spirit, we ask and we pray. We've had a great opportunity to prepare our hearts through a time of corporate singing to give back to you in a small measure that which you've given to us which cannot be measured. And now, Lord, we ask that you would instruct us by the Holy Spirit as we sit at your feet. Cause my words this morning to be yours, words of direction, words of instruction, words of encouragement, words of challenge. And if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, uh, who is a professing believer, but who does not bear in their lives the, the seal of the Holy Spirit of promise might today be the day of certainty and salvation for them. For we ask all these things together in Jesus' name for his sake and for his great glory. And everyone agreeing said, Amen. Amen. Now, as I mentioned, this is a very familiar passage of scripture to many of you this morning. And yet, uh, from the moment that Pastor Ray, as he mentioned in his uh, remarks here just a few moments ago, from the moment that he uh, had the conversation with me and asked me to come and share with you this morning, uh, the first thing I did is I did, I, I, I prayed and I said, all right, Lord, just direct me. And as, and as I sort of directed back in this area, then I did a very quick search on my computer to make sure that I hadn't taught from this text before. But then I got freaked out as I walked in this morning. Some, I was standing at the door and somebody said, are you the guy we were just listening to? I thought, I don't think so. They said, yeah, aren't you, aren't you Jimmy? Okay, yes, I am. I said, well, we were just listening to you um, in, in the car driving over here. And I said, so, so what was I teaching? And they told me, and I, I breathed a sigh of relief. But I also know what I won't be teaching uh, the rest of the next couple of weeks while I'm around these greater parts. I... Uh, so here we are in this familiar passage of scripture and yet familiar to us but we want to take a fresh look at them trusting God to provide us with a with a clear directive as to how we as believers should live for the glory of God in the present day and time like few others in scripture so this passage speaks to us so in the interest of time we begin in earnest this morning look back at verse 7 with me if you will Again, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Now, this was quite a declaration to Peter's first century readers. It challenged them, and it should challenge us to a greater degree. Uh, there, there is no doubt about it. Anytime I look at this scripture, and oftentimes I do, uh, with, with current events as a backdrop to it, it challenges me, and I believe it's intended to challenge all of us to possess a, a determination to live our lives in a manner that is fitting of the prospect of the imminent return of Jesus Christ for his bride, the church. And so considering that the end of all things is at hand and the Lord's return would be imminent, we are exhorted, if you're a note taker, jot these down now, first of all, to live soberly. Uh, and in other words, uh, we're to keep our heads. We're to not be carried away with any form of self-indulgence, be it in food or in drink or in entertainment or binge-watching Netflix or the Hallmark Channel. 
You know, true confessions, that's one of the things that my wife loves to do with me. She loves to sit with me in the evening, and we take this little device that I carry in my pocket, we pull up something, we beam it in the direction of the television, and then she'll sit there with me as she will simultaneously uh, watch that thing. You know, we're watching a thing on the Hallmark Channel right now, you know, episode after episode. Am I, am I confessing my sins right now to you? <laughs> and there she'll sit next to me watching that and playing words with friends or whatever else she does on her. Okay, so now you know how I need Jesus. <laughs> Goodbye and God bless. <laughs> uh, we can relate to this. So we're to we're live soberly and then we're to watch, meaning we are to persevere in an attitude of prayer. Sustained prayer, effective prayer, like a military, uh, like a soldier standing at his sentry, alert at his post, watching, scanning the horizon for any sign of trouble. And then the exhortation continues in verse 8, and above all else. So this would be the now hear this, now hear this, above all else, have fervent agape. Fervent love among yourselves, seeing his love will cover the multitude of sins. Now, that, listen, that doesn't mean that we wink at sin. Not at all. But it does mean that we understand that we're sinners. And the last thing that we can afford at a time like this is to be at odds with each other uh, over petty issues. Over our PMS, poor me syndrome. Above all else, have fervent love among yourselves, for love will cover the multitude of sins. And notice it says, be hospitable one to another. And do it without grudging, without groaning, without moaning, without complaining. So it's telling us, first of all, a priority needs to be given to fervent love. Manifesting mercy and forgiveness on the one hand, hospitality on the other. And with that then, verse 10 tells us that we must be faithful to exercise stewardship with, in, through, over our spiritual gifts, and uh, that we should be fervent in word and deed. And then with that, verse 11, it tells us that in everything we say and do, that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. Of course, in the context is as we prepare for his return where we will see him face to face. And then interestingly, no matter what translation you're reading from this morning, the final words in verse 11 are the same. Amen. So be it. We agree. Let the matter be established. Let's bake this cake. Let's fry this fish. Let's do this thing. That's the idea. Now, I'll say something that we have, that we've all heard uh, Pastor Ray made mention of it a, a few moments back, and, and I say it again this morning with a renewed conviction, uh, with a somewhat sarcastic, wow, I woke up this morning and the end of the world passed us over. It, it, ignore that. It, because it, it, now there were people in the prayer meeting this morning that didn't know about this uh, latest uh, heretic who said from his study of the scripture and numerology and particular signs that he found on the pyramids that the end of the world as we know it was going to occur 
yesterday. So as I was sitting at dinner last night, I was thinking about those people that were across the international date line, and it was already tomorrow, today, and they already knew. Well, anyway. <laughs> so I say it again with a renewed conviction. That stuff aside, you would agree with me. I believe you would, at least, that my heart says to me that the days in which we are living are the bell lap of human history as we know them. We are living in the most exciting time in human history uh, for, for several reasons. Uh, certainly in reference to the advances in science, in industry, in technology that are so much a part of our lives today. And I believe that that that, that, this, that information everywhere and, and technology and mobile devices and, and being able to see things, experience things uh, in real time globally, uh, I believe that that's a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Daniel 12 and verse 4, it says, Where in the time of the end many shall run to and fro, many shall scramble here and there, or literally, many shall dash about from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And knowledge shall increase. And this word knowledge isn't limited to just gathering information, but it's also a reference to the speed at which we would gain and gather the information. You know, until just a couple of generations ago, uh, information traveled at the speed of horseback. Uh, and then the, the, uh, the wireless, the, the, the telegraph, uh, made it travel a little bit quicker, but it was still limited. And now, because of satellites that orbit the Earth and these little devices that we carry in our pockets, I remember it wasn't all that long ago that we had a missionary in Asia, and we bought a satellite phone from, uh, from MAF, from Missionary Aviation Fellowship, and they would have to go out in the jungle and construct this thing in the hopes that they got it at just the right angle so they could communicate with us and we with them. And now this missionary still lives in the jungle on, on, on the Burmese-Thai border, but they have a cell phone. They have a cell signal there. And they can communicate with us in real time. We have, we have seen things change dramatically in our lifetimes. And so saying that, but especially as a believer, these days are exciting because of the spiritual and social and political and economic signs all around us. Signs that say loud and clear that Jesus is coming and perhaps very soon. His return is imminent, meaning it's at the door. But uh, as we know and we believe, right, he could come today. Jesus said so in his response to the question of his disciples, and you know it as the Olivet Discourse recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, uh, just sort of compressing all of them, those uh, gospel accounts together. They asked him uh, three questions. Lord, when would these things be, the destruction of Jerusalem and the sign of thy coming for the church, and thirdly, and the end of the age, coming to establish his, king upon the earth, his kingdom upon the earth? And so he answered, he said, you shall, uh, you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you not be troubled, for these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. 
For nation shall rise against nation. You know, as I mentioned, you're well taught here. You know that word nation, ethnos, from which we get our English word ethnic. And so that, to me, it's speaking of the, the, the ethnic cleansing, the civil war, the civil strife, the civil unrest that's global. And it's concentrated for us now in our country because there isn't, there isn't seemingly a moment of a day that passes that we're not hearing or being reminded of, of the, the civil unrest and the civil strife in our country and in our culture. So nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Now, Ray mentioned um, North Korea just a moment ago. And I believe this kingdom against kingdom is a reference to power struggles or a struggle for dominance. And we know that this has been happening throughout human history. But right now, in, in the day in which we're living, there is a struggle for dominance that's going on geopolitically. And, and Russia is a part of that conversation. And uh, China is a part of that conversation. And the EU is a part of that conversation. And the United States of America is a part of that conversation. And because North Korea isn't necessarily part of that conversation, then the dictator of North Korea, North, North Korea. <laughs> I, thank God it was only Aria that came out. <laughs> I was afraid that Daya before Aria was going to come out. But anyway, he's, he's upset. He's upset because he thinks he should have a, a seat at that table. Do you understand that? That that's what this is all about. He thinks, listen, I have a nuclear uh, weapon, therefore I should be included in that conversation. So he's part of the kingdom against kingdom struggle. And of course there shall be famines and pestilences and great earthquakes in various places. There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. Now someone asked me recently, well is this including uh, the recent eclipse that we had? Um, yes and no. I mean, no, because eclipses are happening all the time. This just happens to be one that we saw here in the continental United States from coast to coast. But they're happening all the time. So it's, it's yes and, and, and no. But I believe this is a reference to atmospheric conditions, to climate changes affecting weather patterns. And no, I, I am not, uh, I am neither a, client, a, a climate global warming guy, nor am I necessarily a, den a denier. Don't put a label on me. Uh, it's just these, these things are happening. We can't, we can't avoid the fact that there is drought on one hand, and then on the other hand, there's uh, torrential rains and flooding and, and the devastation that those things uh, cause. And Jesus continues, and upon the earth, the stress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Uh, hurricanes, tsunamis, typhoons, and so on and so on. Men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. Last night I was um, speaking to Scott Gallatin and his wife Shannon, and we were talking about great earthquakes and, and we were because of relationships that we have as a larger a group of believers within the Calvary Chapel family, we have close friendships and relationships who are uh, in Puerto Rico, for example, who, who are down along the Gulf Coast, uh, who are also in Central and Southern Mexico. 
And so we're talking about those very things. And as we're talking, I get a little ping on my mobile device that says that there was another earthquake last evening too far away uh, from the central Mexico quake that, uh, of earlier last week. This was a, yet another earthquake, not an aftershock, that was located in southern Mexico measuring 6.1. So anymore, you know, it, unless it's 6.5 or greater, we kind of shrug it off. And it's getting to the point, unless it's 7.0 or greater, we're shrugging it off. Well, I can assure you that if we had a 3.5 here uh, in, um, in Webster, New York, you would be shaking, literally. So you would know it. I mean, this is intense. And I can't help but wonder, and I'm sure you have as well, Lord, what are you saying? What are you saying to the earth? What are you saying to the church? Lord, give us an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying. Now, we don't have time to unpack all that Jesus had to say uh, in the Olivet Discourse. And then apply them to things happening around the world. We're well aware of what's happening around the world. But it is enough to be reminded that the things that Jesus said would be occurring in those days just prior to his return for his bride, the church, are indeed an accurate description of the days we're living in. I think of this here. Men's hearts failing them for fear and for the things coming upon the earth. I think that is an accurate depiction of the way many people in the world are feeling today. Hearts failing for fear for the expectation of things which are coming upon the earth. Things like spiritual bankruptcy here in America and all over the world. Economic uncertainty here in America and in Europe and in much of the industrialized world. Anarchy. There has been such an increase in anarchy globally in recent years. Lawlessness, sometimes violent, destructive demonstrations, which in some instances have birthed full-on riots all across Europe. Western Europe in particular, here in the United States. Charlottesville, Virginia is, uh, is close to me geographically, but it's closer to, to my heart uh, because two of my grandsons were born there. My, my daughter and her family um, lived in Charlottesville and, and have recently relocated to the District of Columbia. Uh, but still, I, I, I knew those places. I've been, been to those very areas. And so that, that, made, that was close to home for me. And I think we can all relate to that um, to one degree or another. And then, of course, violence. And when I talk about violence, don't limit your thinking just to crime and criminals. But be sure that you include all acts of terrorism, foreign and domestic, which are on the increase. And so this is the reason why men's hearts are failing them for fear and for the expectation of things which are coming on the earth. They, they know it's coming and their seemingly futility. They don't know what, if anything, they can do to stop it. Oppression, famine, pestilence, swine flu, bird flu, Zika, Lyme disease. Ebola, E. coli. And so Jesus says, 
Luke 21, 28, when these things begin to come to pass. Like a woman who is uh, great with child and uh, right now, you know, she's experiencing the Braxton Hicks contractions, false labor. But when the real deal starts, there's no turning back. I've been with my wife on five different occasions when she reached that particular point of labor in the process of delivery, and she would just have rather kind of packed up our stuff and gone home. But once you get to that point, there's no turning back. And Jesus said that, that there would be days that would precede it that would be like the false labor, but then the real deal is going to come. And he says, when you begin to see these things come to pass, when you, when you see the equivalent of false labor, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draws near. Indeed, as we read in verse 7 here of 1 Peter chapter 4, the end of all things is at hand. And as far as I'm concerned, the facts speak for themselves. And speaking as they do, they challenge me and hopefully they challenge you to recognize the urgency of the hour. And recognizing the urgency of the hour, they challenged me to be, to be committed to a certain kind of last day's living. Now, it's not that people necessarily knew what I was going to share this morning, but when I joined the prayer meeting uh, back in the pastor's office earlier this morning, this is the way that the Spirit was directing the prayer. In light of what's happening in the world, Lord, Help us to walk circumspectly, not foolishly, but wisely, redeeming the opportunities that will most certainly come our way. As people are going to be asking us, what in the world is going on? What do you think about these things? You know, as believers, we should know the times and we should be able to address the times from the scripture. Uh, we are not ignorant that these days should overcome us like a thief. True, no man knows the day or the hour. Uh, but Jesus also said, but of the seasons you are not ignorant. So we are living in those seasons, and I'm convinced of it. And so Paul, now writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lists the demands for last day's believers. Um, verse 7, middle of verse 7, Be ye therefore sober, and watch, and pray, have fervent love, be a faithful steward of your gifts so that by and in and with all these things, God in heaven through Christ would be glorified. So that's that. We'll lay that aside. Now, please turn with me over to Luke chapter 12. Now, when I talked to Ray about this the other day, I hadn't really prepared yet. I was still reading, and so I'd only gotten as far as Luke chapter 12. We'll turn one more time later on, but this is enough for now. Luke chapter 12, another uh, familiar passage of Scripture, and we're going to drop in in verse 35. So the Gospel of Luke chapter 12 and verse 35. We'll give you a moment to get there. I love the sound of Bible pages flipping. Uh, a couple of you have electronic Bibles. They don't make any sound. Put them away for the sake of your... Uh, seriously, I've, I've, got, I've got one that I carry with me, and, and it's great. 
uh, and I sit in, when I sit in church, I've got it out. I'm looking at several different Bible translations. I get completely lost. I'm starting to do word studies. And, you know, and then the pastor says, amen, and I'm off someplace else. So, but anyway, if like maybe you drive an electric car, and so you have to put that fake motor sound so that, you're, so that somebody doesn't step out in front of you. So if you use one of those electronic Bibles, make it beep or get the fake turning the pages. I, I'm wasting valuable time here. <laughs> I'm sorry for that. Verse 35, Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And you yourselves be like men that wait for their Lord. When he shall return from the wedding, that would be from the wedding preparation, that when he comes and knocks, you might open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. Verily, truly, I say unto you that he, that is speaking of uh, the master, that he shall gird himself and make them uh, to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Be you therefore ready also, for the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not. Now, this passage clearly refers to the need to be ready for the Lord when he returns. And if we would take the time to establish how these words appear in the context in which Jesus originally delivered them, you would discover that it follows immediately on the heels of what Jesus has to say about a believer and his or her ambition. Questions about where their treasure was. Was their treasure being laid up in the temporal things of this life or in the eternal things in heaven above? Are we laying up treasure upon the earth where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break in and steal, or are we laying up treasure in heaven? Treasure that will not be corrupted, treasure that cannot be taken or stolen from us. It just notice up the verse, uh, up the page one verse, verse 34, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Therefore, So hinged upon that statement, that declarative that Jesus makes, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Therefore, let your loins be girt about and your lights burning and you yourselves like men that wait for their Lord when he will return, that when he comes and knocks, you might open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. The end of all things is at hand. Be sober and watch and pray. The same idea here. Now at this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus 
and his Galilean ministry is rapidly drawing to a close. And the time is near where Jesus will be going up to Jerusalem for the final time, this time to die. He told them before, and he's reminding them again that he's going away, that his hour was at hand. As you know, uh, six times in the Gospel of John, it's recorded for us that his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. But then finally, following his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the hour has come that the Son of Man would be glorified. This is the most important hour in human history, and it's not 60 minutes long, uh, but it is really focused about the events that occur from the last Passover Seder in the upper room, what we refer to as the Last Supper, through the resurrection, and those days that followed the resurrection until Jesus ascended to heaven. His hour was at hand, and in light of this, and of his promise to return to establish his kingdom upon the earth, he urges all of his disciples, and that was those present, and that includes you and I this morning, to remain steadfast, immovable, watching and waiting for the return of our bridegroom. Now, this, this is the very thought in mind uh, when he utters the words of verse 35. He's appealing to his disciples, and he says, Therefore, let your loins be girt about, and your lights burning. In other words, live in light of the Lord's return. Now, what does it mean to have your loins girt? Well, of course, the majority of you certainly know that in the day and the culture of Jesus, uh, men wore long flowing robes that hung down to approximately their ankles and it would prove to be a hindrance to them when it came time to work and so they would collect up the front of their garment and they would uh, tuck it into their robe or tuck it into their girdle and uh, something similar to a leather belt that we might wear today. And then of course there was the Roman soldier that the Apostle Paul made reference to. The girdle that he wore uh, was not so much a belt as it was a leather apron. Now, for him, uh, his, his uh, garment was shorter by design, but he wore this leather girdle that would provide protection for some of his lower extremities. And, of course, it was the integrating portion of the, all, uh, the, uh, the armor in that the breastplate would connect to it and the sheath that held his sword would hang from it. It was, uh, it's just clear to understand that, that this is important. And in the first century, they would have understood immediately this reference to have your loins girt. Uh, be, get yourself ready for action and activity. Uh, the, the girdle had the function of pulling things together or holding things together. As I mentioned, they would gather up their robes and tuck them into the girdle, which would give them freedom of movement. It would also ensure that their movement wouldn't be encumbered and that they would not, be, they would not tend to trip themselves up. It's interesting. Uh, Blind Bartimaeus, uh, the story of Blind Bartimaeus, Mark chapter 10, it's the last miracle that's recorded in Mark's gospel account. Now, uh, some count the miracle of Jesus post-resurrection uh, when uh, he causes every fish in the Sea of Galilee to jump inside 
uh, their net, 153 fish, it seems. But the last one prior to the cross was the healing of blind Bartimaeus. And it's a curious thing that when Jesus stops to call this blind man to himself, he takes his cloak, the most important possession that he had, and he threw it off him. Why? Because he didn't want anything to hold him back. He didn't want anything to potentially hinder him, his way in, in coming to the Lord. And so, so we understand the idea. Let your loins be girt about. Keep yourselves ready for action and activity. Prepare for the Lord's return. Root out anything and everything that has the, the, the potential to hinder your walk or to trip you up. At 1 Peter 1.13, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, keep your thoughts clear and ready for action. Remain level-headed and wide awake. Live a life that's pulled together. Live a life that's ready to serve. Live a life that's interested in the glory of God rather than in the comfort of yourselves. Let your loins be girt about and your lights burning, he says. Now, again, this is a reference to the small lamps that they would carry as they moved about at night in the first century. Many of them didn't have a smartphone that had a flashlight app attached to it so they could just pull out of their pocket and have access to instant light. But, of course, they carried lamps which were usually nothing more than just a small clay pot with a carrying handle. And that lamp would be filled with oil. And there would be a cotton wick of one sort or another that would float on top. And the wick, not only did the oil need to be continually filled, but the wick needed to be continually trimmed so that the light wouldn't go out. Now, with that kind of as settling your thoughts, just one more uh, make another left and go back even further to Matthew chapter 25. Now, this is that other passage I had uh, made reference of. And uh, it, it's another hand in glove talking about the same story. Imagine that we had a large chandelier hanging in the middle of the room, and we had a single source of light that was uh, either coming from above through that um, or from an, another spot uh, projected against it. Th the truth is, no matter where you would stand around the room, you would see the light refracted uh, a bit differently. So the prism uh, that you would see from this quadrant or that quadrant or those back quadrants would be different. But it's the same single source of light. And so this is that effect. We're looking at the same thing, but we're looking at it from yet a different vantage point or a different perspective. So in Matthew chapter 25, uh, this is now in the same context of Jesus uh, having been asked, uh, Lord, what will be, uh, when will these things be, the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That was Matthew chapter 24. And now in chapter 25, he tells a parable. Verse 1, Matthew 25. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps with no oil in them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. 
While the bridegroom tarried, they slumbered and slept. If you don't mind taking notes there or making a note, jotting a note in the margin of your Bible, just make the reference there, Ephesians 5.14. Awake you that sleep, awake thou that sleepest, and rise from your slumber, and Christ will shine on you. Be, be therefore, or, or uh, see then that you walk or you live circumspectly, that you live wisely, not foolishly, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So, well, the bridegroom tarries and those waiting for their groom, they slumber and sleep. He continues, and at midnight there was a cry made, behold, the bridegroom comes. Go ye out to meet him. Then all the virgins arose, verse 7, and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish said to the wise, give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, not so, lest there not be enough for you and us, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage supper, and the door was shut. Afterward came also those other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, verse 12, Truly I say unto you, I know you not. Notice now, Jesus says, Watch therefore. For you neither know the day or the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. Now, this is a parable. What's the difference between a parable and, let's say, teaching or instruction that we receive from one of the New Testament epistles? Like, for example, Ray is teaching through the epistle of Jude now. What's the difference between what we read there and this right here? It's not a trick question, by the way. What's the difference between that teaching, that word, and, and a parable? What is it? I'm not, not trying to trick, trick you, so anyone just be brave, and you're probably right. Just say what it is. Yeah, that's right. This is not intended to be interpreted literally. Jesus is doing, as he often did, he's using a story. He's going to tell a story that will illustrate a point. So it's an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning or a heavenly application. So there are some that look at this and try to study it, unpack it, and apply it in the same way that you would going verse by verse through the epistle of Jude. You can't do that. Nonetheless, you realize that it is teaching important truth, and this is truth about the kingdom. And in this instance, it's talking, this is the king using a story to talk about what will be occurring upon the earth while the king has gone away to heaven to prepare a place for them until he returns to the earth to receive them. So he says, then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened to ten virgins. And then he goes on from there, and we know that five were wise and five were foolish. And the time came that the, the, they heard the voice, Behold, the bridegroom comes. Now, all of them had been slumbering. But the grace of God 
is evidenced in the fact that there were those five who had oil in their lamps. And they were able to quickly, quote, trim their lamps and, and prepare themselves for the bridegroom, whereas the five foolish uh, were not. Now, before we get to kind of finding an application for ourselves, just indulge me. No, don't indulge me. Okay, I'll do this second service because then I'm going to get in my car and drive away and no one will even care. I'll never come back here, but... But if you understand the various aspects of, of a Jewish courtship and a Jewish wedding, it's important that you fit this, that, into your understanding here about what happens between uh, two fathers and the agreement they make between one between their son and the other between uh, their daughter and they make a covenant and then gifts are given and then the, the son of the father goes back to the father's house to prepare a dwelling place for his bride and it's the father who determines when the groom goes to fetch his bride etc so that's what's happening here we read in Ephesians 1:13 having heard the word of truth having also believed we were sealed with the holy spirit of promise which is given to us as a pledge of our inheritance until the promised redemption of that purchased possession. That's the gift that we, as the potential bride, was given by our bridegroom. Uh, it's interesting that that word pledge is the Greek word ahraban, and it literally talks about a, a ring of promise or a ring of engagement that we were given. Now, you and I understand that what that is is that simultaneously it's the seal or the mark of the Holy Spirit upon our lives, and then it's the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell with us, and in the same way that you may have given a ring of engagement to your, to your wife, your bride-to-be, so he's given us a ring of engagement, an earnest deposit, the King James says. An earnest deposit, if you've ever bought a piece of property, you know that you, that you made an earnest deposit. What you did is you ponied up money and you said, listen, I intend to finish this transaction. And just to show you I'm sincere here, I'm putting this money on deposit. And if I back out for any reason that's not related to something that you failed to do as part of the agreement, then I lose my earnest monies. So I've got skin in the proverbial game here. I'm going to finish the purchase that I've begun. Listen to the words of the British theologian John Gill. He said these things around 265 years ago or so. And no, Ray and I weren't there with him drinking tea when that happened. <laughs> he says this. He says, the earnest deposit is what confirms an agreement and assures the right to the thing agreed. It is a part of it, but lesser than the total sum, and it is never returned. 
he continues, he says, So is the seal of the Holy Spirit of God, certifying the right to a heavenly inheritance. He is the first fruits of eternal glory and happiness, and of the same kind with it. Now, this is where Jesus said, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, and the one that you have sent, now the, the Holy Spirit, through this earnest deposit, it's part of the same deal. So is the seal of the Spirit of God certifying the right to the heavenly inheritance. He, the Holy Spirit, is the first fruits of eternal glory and happiness and of the same kind with it. As he is enjoyed in measure by the saints now. But the measure, the small measure, is far less than the sum of communion which they shall have with him and the Father and the Son hereafter. So what we have now is just a small measure of what we will have when we are with him in his presence, in glory. It says, for the best is yet to come. So back to the idea of betrothal. During the betrothal, the groom returns to their father's house, prepares the added rooms uh, to accommodate his bride-to-be. It continues until the father says, go and get your bride. The father is the one that determines when the work is complete. And then at that point, the friend of the bridegroom goes ahead of the bridegroom, and they go together to fetch his bride and to bring her back to the father's house to the dwelling that's been prepared for her. Now we think of the words of John 12, where his disciples are in the upper room with him, and he's told them yet again that he's going away. He's going to die. And they're troubled. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. They were more troubled than they'd ever been in the three and a half years that they'd been with him. Let not your hearts be troubled. You've believed in the Father. Continue to believe in me. He knew that their faith would be dashed in a matter of hours. And they would think with his crucifixion, death, and burial that their dreams for a king and a kingdom would be gone. He said, no, you've believed in the Father to this point. Continue to believe in me. And then he said something to them that should have resonated with them. For in my Father's house are many mansions. Now, it wasn't long before that that he said to them about keep your loins girt and your lamps burning. And then just a couple of days prior to that, where he said, the kingdom is likened to ten virgins, five wise and five foolish. And so he says to them again, now let not your hearts be troubled. This imagery is going to come to pass. For in my father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go and prepare a place for you. As a bridegroom who would go away to prepare a place for his bride. And if I go and prepare that place for you, I will come again and redeem you to myself that where I am, there might you be also. And we know that when the bride returns with the bridegroom to the father's house, that the marriage feast will be held and the friends of the bridegroom will be in attendance. And the application to our lives, as we conclude, should be obvious. Because... Our heavenly bridegroom 
is preparing to come for his betrothed, the church, you and me. That being the case, it's clear that those passages that we've looked at this morning have primarily been for the purpose to stress the importance of being ready for the Lord's return when he comes in the rapture for his bride. And I, like many of you, am personally convinced that this is the next great event on the prophetic calendar. An event that the Bible tells us about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet blast of God, and the dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible. Then we who are alive shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Perhaps the voice of the archangel is heard to say, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. We don't know. Getting back to the conclusion of our story here this morning. I realize that there are brilliant scholarly men who disagree with my interpretation of this passage of scripture. But I and your pastor and many, 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 many others of us believe that these 10 virgins here are referencing the professing church. All who appear to be waiting for the promised return of their bridegroom. Outwardly, there's no discernible difference to these maidens. They all have the appearance of betrothed virgins. They all have lamps. I believe that's a reference to the fact that they all have the word of God, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And they all appear to be waiting for the return of the bridegroom. But things are not as they appear to be. Because five were wise and five were foolish. There were those who were prepared and there were those who were unprepared. There were tares among the wheat. There was counterfeit among the genuine. In this moment of time, may God the Holy Spirit search your heart and mind. You know, I spoke last week with, uh, with a 50-year-old guy, a pilot who's on a medical deferment right now. And he's been someone who has been professing Christ for years. And his testimony is that he can look back to when he was five or six years old at vacation Bible school and so on. And I've known this guy for years. And, and he's, he's, got, he's needy. I hope I don't misrepresent him. He's needy. And so he's always looking for something. He's, he's looking for something that will meet one of his felt needs. And I've discerned for years that I don't think this guy is really born again. Now, he believes all the right things about all the right things. And if you ask him a question, he can answer right away. But, but he just doesn't seem to be able to rest in the promises of God. He's not anchored within the veil. And so when, when I asked him last weekend, hey, straight up, do you know that you know that you know? He said, I think I do. And I said, then you don't. 
If you think you do, then you don't. And if you're here this morning and you think you do and you're not sure, then you, you likely don't. Because if, if you are one of those who's been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's been given that pledge of an inheritance until the promised redemption of the purchased possession, you should know it. And you likely do know it. But if you lack that witness in your heart uh, this day, then don't let the sun go down until you get right with God in heaven through faith in his son. Don't be like the foolish virgin that thought in the end that they would have time to get themselves turned around and get themselves right. Saving grace is a personal possession. It's not transferable. There's no last-minute opportunity made available to those who are unprepared. That's why the wise couldn't share their oil. And sadly, it, it says there, and it was after midnight. It's interesting what Albert Barnes writes. Lord, Lord, they come did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many wonderful works in your name? And Jesus shall answer them, Depart from me, I never knew you, you that work iniquity. From the ESV, depart from me, you who work wickedness. Well, wait, I mean, that doesn't sound like wickedness to me. But Albert Barnes writes this, and he says, Of all their professions or excuse me, all of their professions were, in fact, pretensions. They had never been true followers of Christ. J.N. Darby adds, and he says, what they claimed to have intimacy with Christ is just what he repudiates with a certain scornful dignity. Our acquaintance was not broken off. Our engagement was not broken off. There never was any. So Jesus concludes with the exhortation of verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know not the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. Be ready, be vigilant. The signs are there for us to see Jesus is coming. He's coming soon, perhaps today. Are you ready? Are you living like you're ready? We talk about being ready all the time, but for the people that observe your life day in and day out, would, would they say that your life is giving evidence that you're living as if you believe that Jesus could return at any moment? That's something sobering to think about for certain. We're out of time. Let's, let's just pray now and let's let the Spirit do his work. Father, we pray asking that by the Holy Spirit you'd search hearts here this hour. Lord, you've said a lot to us, familiar things. And hopefully, Lord, we've been, uh, we've been spurred to virtue this morning. And we don't want to be those who slumber uh, and sleep, uh, knowing that your coming is near, perhaps even at the door. Uh, Lord, again, we were reminded this morning that the day and the hour, no man knows. You come like a thief. You come unannounced. But you said the times and the seasons, none of us should be ignorant of. You told us the things to look for, Lord, and those are the things, those are the things that mark 
the world in which we live in. And so, Lord, we pray for each of us this morning, uh, knowing that there is a possibility that there are those in our midst who, not discernible to me, are likened to the foolish virgin that outwardly appears to have their life together, outwardly appears to be a follower of yours through faith in your son, but they, they lack. They lack the abiding presence, the sealing of the Holy Spirit in their lives. There's no oil in their proverbial lamp. And so there's no ownership there. There's been no adoption there. And to those that will in that day knock on that door, that door in heaven that will be open, the door that John saw. Behold, I saw a door in heaven open and heard a voice like a trumpet that said, Come up here and I will show you things which must be after these things, the things of the church age. Lord, a door is going to open in heaven one day very soon and we're going to be caught up to meet you in the clouds. We're going to hear the voice of the archangel. We're going to hear the trumpet blast. And for those of us who are ready, we'll be caught away to be with you forever. And for those who are not prepared, we'll, left, we'll be left behind. And we'll be those who come knocking at the door, Lord, Lord, Lord. And Lord, you'll say, I didn't break the engagement. There, there never was one. Lord, is anyone here today who's not certain about their personal relationship with you, if they don't have the assurance of their salvation, if they don't know without a doubt that being in Christ, their sins are forgiven, their names are written in the book of life, they're indwelt by the Spirit, and the Spirit has put His seal, His mark of ownership upon their lives. Lord, please, by your Spirit, don't allow them to leave this day until they've settled that with you. And for the rest of us, Lord, may we leave here with purpose, with purpose before us, determined to walk with you, to live for you, to live our lives as though we believed you could come today. Lord, help us to be concerned for the lost around us, just as you're concerned for the lost around us. Lord, don't let the, the seeming unending uh, cry of voices, crying voices uh, of, of people who are the 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 subjects of uh, flood and earthquake and, uh, and, and et cetera. Lord, don't, don't let those voices ever get us to the point that we lose a sensitivity. And Lord, even more than caring for them physically, might we care for their souls. And Lord, we may not know anyone who lives in South Florida or along the Gulf Coast or, or in Puerto Rico or in Mexico uh, Lord, or in other places around the world that are facing such calamity. But we do know the people that live next door to us and across the street from us, Lord, and help us to care for them in the same way. And help us to care for their souls, Lord. And not hide our light under a, under a bed or under a basket, but display it prominently that everyone can see it letting our light so shine before other men that they would see our good works and not merely hear of our grand intentions 
And so glorify our Father in heaven. May our lives lead people right to your feet. That's our prayer, Lord. Uh, thank you for your grace and that you allowed me to go over, like always. In Jesus' name, amen.